Hey, Jeff, you remember Schoolhouse Rock, I'm sure. I'm just a bill sitting here on Capitol Hill. It's one of the most famous of the series, and it debuted in 1976. <laughs> 1976, unbelievable. Michael, I'm glad I just didn't have to sing that. Um, it's a good piece of trivia for our listeners, though. Um, I sure do remember it because, uh, you know, I've shown it to my own kids uh, recently. But as we'll discuss today, how a bill really becomes a law, especially when it comes to higher ed, is much different. On this episode of Future You, we have two former Hill staffers who worked on both sides of the House Education Committee, Allison Griffin and Julie Peller, to give us the inside scoop on higher ed policy and what's next on Capitol Hill as institutions look to the federal government for help during the pandemic. This episode of Future You is brought to you by Nelnet Campus Commerce, delivering a secure, integrated payment experience for higher education. Please subscribe to Future You on whatever platform you like to listen. And if you enjoy the podcast, leave us a rating so others know about the great conversations we're sharing about higher ed. And don't miss our weekly poll on Twitter and Facebook. You can find us at the handle Future You Podcast. We'll try and discuss some of the interesting results to questions on upcoming episodes. I'm Jeff Salingo. And I'm Michael Horn. So Jeff, as we were planning for the second half of this season of Future You, we were thinking obviously about the important stories that will shape higher ed and work in the year ahead. And clearly the pandemic and its impact remains the story. Yeah, right, Michael. I think at the same time, we have a new presidential administration and a new Congress in D.C. So we also wanted to explore the obviously huge role the federal government will play in all this. In a few weeks, we're really excited to have not just one, but two former secretaries of education who are going to be with us on Future You. Yeah, I'm super excited for that. And obviously, our listeners know we tend not to get into the weeds of policy in this podcast. But I think these episodes are really important right now and worth a listen. Yeah, I remember a few years ago moderating a panel with Josh Jarrett when he was still with the Gates Foundation. And I mentioned how much influence the foundation had because of all the money they gave away in higher ed. And in public there, he corrected me, given how much it pales in comparison to what the federal government gives out and the control of the purse strings that it has over higher ed. Yeah, it's totally true, Jeff, because even just looking at the last two stimulus bills related to the pandemic, in addition to the regular appropriations to higher ed, the sector and its students got an additional $36 billion just from the federal government. Yeah, so to better understand how all this works, we're excited to have with us today Allison Griffin and Julie Peller. Allison is now a senior vice president at Whiteboard Advisors, and probably some of you follow her writing in Forbes. In 2001 and then again in 2003 until 2006, she was a staff member for the Republicans when John Boehner was chairman of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. And we also have with us Julie Peller, who is executive director of Higher Learning Advocates, an organization that supports and advances policy changes that increase access and success for students. From 2006 until 2013, so right after Allison, she was also on the staff of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce on the other side for the Democrats. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So let's start off with a bit of a civics lesson for those listeners who might not know how higher ed policy works on Capitol Hill. Both of you were staffers on the House Education and Labor Committee, which, just to be clear for our listeners, seems to undergo a name change every few years with the switch in power in Congress. Uh, and I think most people understand 
that representatives and senators, they have their personal staff. But but first, could you explain the job of staffers on the committees and how they interact with members specifically? And without getting to schoolhouse rock here, how does an education bill really become law? Julie, can we start with you? Sure. So the committee's role and the committee staff role is to be the issue expert. Allison and I got to spend all day every day thinking about higher education and higher education policy, whereas in a personal office, a staff person could be worrying about higher education for one half an hour and land use the next half hour and transportation policy on the third. Uh, And so we really were able to dig in deep and work with members and their staff to answer questions and um, think about things a little bit more broadly than at the district level. Uh, how does an education bill really become law is is a very complicated <laughs> question. But, you know, I think it comes with priority setting from leadership, from the committees, um, and from what, what's going on in the country. And it can show up in one of two places, the committee we worked with or through spending dollars on, on the appropriation side. Julie is exactly right. Um, we did spend all of our time uh, serving as subject matter experts, if you will, on a wide variety of higher ed issues. Um, the, the benefit that that actually offered both to the committee, um, but also to the members that serve on the committee is if they had issues that they wanted to research or uh, Uh, policy ideas that they wanted to even share across the aisle, Um, we became the the conduit of information. Now, granted, this was 20 years ago, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about how times have changed, but the one thing I'd emphasize, um, with regard to how a bill really becomes a law, I think it's important for your listeners to know that the majority of the laws in the country are actually written by people largely under the age of 35. It's the the staffers, whether the personal office staff who are collaborating with committee staff or committee staff who are working with a legislative council, who are actually the ones that are doing the research, doing the drafting, and then sharing those ideas with the members of Congress. And so for those who want to be more involved in the policymaking process, Certainly knowing your member of Congress is important, but knowing who is staffing those members and knowing who's staffing the committees as subject matter experts is probably more important. Yeah. So, Allison, it seems to me, let's talk about how the changes over time, because it seems to me that higher ed policymaking has really become a lot more piecemeal um, in the two decades um, and probably really kind of starting when uh, when you were on the Hill, so no connection between those two things. But right, it used to be that most higher ed policymaking was done through the renewal of the Higher Education Act every several years, and then you'd have money doled out through the annual appropriations bills. But none of that really seems to happen anymore. Can you kind of explain what's happened and, and why, and most important, like what does this really mean for students and institutions that, that this change is, seems to be happening? It is, a, it is a complex process to follow. You don't examine the law comprehensively if you do this work outside of a reauthorization. So not only is it hard for the people who have followed this for 20 years <laughs> to keep track of it, imagine what it's like for even those who are trying to influence policy, much less those who are trying to live under new policy to keep track of what is happening when it's not happening on a regular cadence. Some of this is inside Washington process, right? What people should care about are the issues that 
they and the reforms that need to happen. Where it matters is it's a chance for Congress to look, take a step back and say, how does this whole system work? Do the pieces fit together? And that's what I think gets missed when you do a piecemeal approach to policy reform, because you're dealing with one issue over here, and two years later, you might pick up another thread, but you don't get a chance to see the pieces together. And that's where really reauthorization conversations come in. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about influencing policy. And and, and Julie, so when I covered the Hill for the Chronicle of Higher Ed in the in late 1990s, one thing that always struck me was about how institutions were re- represented in kind of lobbying Congress, either through their, you know, national associations, their paid reps, you know, or college presidents who would always visit the Hill when they came to Washington, but students weren't really represented. Now, I know this is probably true of, you know, cons- the consumer and almost, you know, every sector of the economy, but we know that policy impacts students. I mean, do you think the voice of students should be more represented? And and practically, how can that even be done? Or is it just a lost cause? Absolutely. I think they need to be. Higher education policy, especially at the federal level, starts with the institution at the center right now. We don't start with students at the center. And I think that is as much of a symptom and a result of who is up there, up there talking about a lot of times those interests overlap, and a lot of times they don't. And I think that second realization is new, not only for policymakers, but for students themselves, um, particularly students who are working and adults and parents themselves. It's a really hard process to engage in. But in this era of greater technology and greater ways to reach reach members and their staff, as Allison rightly pointed out, I think it's possible. It's just a matter of explaining to to students where those avenues exist. I'm going to share a quick anecdote, and it's actually a testament to the work that Julie and Higher Learning Advocates has done to increase the attention um, of the student voice in a lot of these policy issues. Almost 20 years ago, I remember walking into a room for a meeting with the Coalition for Better Student Loans. Right? You would think that that group would have included some student voices. And to my surprise, I walked in, there wasn't a student in the room. And I would suggest that while the student voice isn't as loud and represented as perhaps it potentially could be, the fact that we've seen some legislative change, even over the course of this pandemic period, that directly impacts students is a test to. Julie, her organization, other organizations that are representative of the student voice getting uh, that voice uh, heard in Washington. So I want to dig in a little bit more on this because one of the big things that have changed, obviously, is that who goes to higher ed has changed considerably over the years. So Allison, let's, let's start with you, which is, you know, how well do the staff and members really understand the higher ed system that we have today? And who attends higher education, who, you know, who that student is, if you will, compared to the 1960s when the original Higher Ed Act was was first passed? Well, I will say this. Anyone who went to college or had a post-secondary experience beyond high school is an expert on Capitol Hill about (laughs) higher ed. I think that's true everywhere probably these days. Sure, absolutely. And so I would say, again, I'm reflecting back on 20 years ago, but we would have a conversation with members as staff and 
candidly, we were talking about distance education, online learning. And when we would use the phrase distance education, I would suggest a third of our members thought we were talking about correspondence courses. And I mean that respectfully, but the fact is people reflect on their own experience. And while I think that understanding has changed somewhat, I would also argue that the staff who are largely representative of um, the education committee members and, and doing uh, the work on those issues have had a fairly traditional, if not elite, post-secondary experience. So I think we're a long way from the people who are making the laws and writing the laws, fully appreciating how much uh, the, the population of students ha have really changed. And this is the heart of a large part of what Higher Learning Advocates does, you know, and I, I, I echo what Allison is saying of staff are disproportionately come from a traditional and selective uh, four-year experience. It's just the nature of who congressional staff tend to be. A lot of people are working to change that on a number of fronts. I think they're starting to say, oh, yeah, there are working learners. There are adult learners. But where the change has to happen is to say that the 18 to 22-year-old on-campus college experience is not the gold standard. I think there's a recognition that students are look different, but kind of an assumption that they should still be going to school the way that people did in 1965, not how people go to school in 2021. Yeah. So let's dive into current issues for a second here. Um, so the stimulus bills have been a major issue, of course, for Congress since the pandemic. Higher ed has received money that split between students and institutions, you know, assuming that there are going to be more stimulus dollars to come. And I think that's probably a safe assumption. Who knows how much, of course. What else do you think needs to be done for higher ed? Where would you like to see the money spent and and how? Let's start with you, Julie. So I'd like to see the money spent on students. Certainly keeping institutions open is a real concern and something that needs to be addressed. But the needs for students that were addressed at the beginning of the pandemic, things like access to emergency aid, access to technology, broadband, hardware, those things existed last March and they exist this March. Uh, and I think that I fear a conversation about supporting institutions will drive Congress away from a conversation about supporting students, which ultimately will keep us um, get the country back on its feet more and keep institutions open in more the long run than kind of stemming the tide uh, at institution dollars right now. I'm thinking about this wearing two hats. One is a university trustee, obviously very concerned about the impact that the pandemic has had on our public institution, but also through the lens of a learner, a, as Michelle Weiss calls it, a long life learner, not a lifelong learner, but knowing that we're going to have a longer life how are we supporting learners throughout the course of learning? And so I think that there's actually a balance to be struck between how we continue to support institutions by the things they're doing to support students, right? I don't think this is about recouping loss on the bottom line. This is about getting materials and resources and additional wraparound supports uh, in place for students. Um, but I also think that there's a, a new frame of the learner 
And how do we get dollars in the hands of learners of all ages, as you talk about today's students, um, to to upskill, reskill, get back to education, get back to training so they can get to work. Um, I, I just think there's a different approach that we could be taking with new stimulus dollars that may flow beyond what higher education or post-secondary education's already received. So beyond the pandemic and stimulus, if you think more broadly about what you would have expected with a new administration coming in and, and so forth, what other higher ed issues do you think ought to be addressed by Congress perhaps this year or next year, thinking about the two-year window we're in and, and knowing that activity seems to have to start early for it to get uh, passed, if it has any chance these days. But uh, Allison, what are your thoughts on that? So I have two two things that I'd love to see Congress address, the administration address. And I think in some sense, both of these topics have been on the agendas. I just the the the, um, the uh, attention should really be in the details, and I don't think we've seen details yet. The first is, you know, we've talked a lot about short-term credentials, short-term training programs, other ways to get learners back into uh, learning and training opportunities. I think we need to um, establish some quality metrics for those short-term providers. Um, we need to start looking at outcomes more so than inputs. That's been decades uh, of conversation, but. I do think this administration, particularly with their talent and training focus, um, should really be thinking about uh, what what those short-term training programs and the quality assurance standards associated with them should look like. The second is um, related, but how are learners of all ages going to pay for that education and training? And how do we expand financial aid program offerings, um, making them uh, perhaps a little bit more um, flexible? Um, or, you know, it's more than just adding money to accounts. It's also creating flexibility in the uses of some of those funds. So I'd like to see the administration tackle questions related uh, to financial aid. Um, and just an evidence that bipartisanship is not dead in, in Washington. Thank you, Julie. Uh, certainly. <laughs> Plus one, two, to what Allison said. You know, I think this issue of what is the new normal for post-secondary education and how do we take this opportunity to accelerate the reforms that all those of us who've been knee-deep in it for, for so long have been seeing coming? Um, but how do we do it with the learner at the, at the center? I agree with Allison that thinking about shorter-term programs, alternatives to, credential, uh, to degrees has to be part of the conversation. Another part of that has to be how we draw pathways and connections between those programs for the learners. I'm very, you know, right now we have a system at the federal level that supports workforce training at the Department of Labor and uh, higher education degrees at the Department of Education and all sorts of other work-supported supports at agriculture and commerce and all these other departments if a learner goes through a program supported in one silo, it's incredibly difficult to translate that knowledge, translate those credentials into something else. And we're just losing people and their talent in the process. And so I really hope that this administration takes a more comprehensive look as they're looking toward recovery and uh, around the corner of what the new normal could be. I'm also just struck by the language both of you are using, because if I go through the Higher Education Act, I'm assuming that the term used probably most often is student. Um, and you're talking about learner. And I think that's a really big change that um, 
that we're, we're going to be we need to be talking about. So we have a, just a couple of seconds left, but I really want to get your take on on something that's actually non higher ed uh, related. You, you probably saw the news that it's being recommended permanent fencing be installed at the at the Capitol. And as a 20 plus year resident of, of D.C., I can't imagine how much that that really makes me really sad. Right. So given that you've spent so much of your life there um, in that Capitol complex, you know, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, Allison, start with you. Wow. Um, you know, Jeff, the first thing your question makes me think of is um, the uh, changes that uh, we all faced right after 9-11. Um, I mean, I used to walk into congressional buildings without going through a metal detector. Um, you know, I didn't know where the gas, ma- gas mask was in my office. Um, and unfortunately, it became a sign of the times. And I would say Capitol Hill staffers now that that's the that's the norm um and so i'm really sad to say that i feel like this might be part of the new normal i am experiencing the same thing here in i'm in denver colorado um and just the landscape of the city is tremendously different over the last uh, couple weeks and months um, and this just goes it, back to, Julia, I'd love to get your thoughts yeah. too, because this just goes back to this idea of the ease, right, of going to see members and things like that. Yeah. I it Also, as a 20-plus year resident of, of the D.C. area, you know, it just makes me, makes me sad. And there's something about the government geek in me that still, 20 years later, gets excited walking across the plaza um, at, at the Capitol. And as a staffer, you know, you live in such a bubble. In not only in Washington, D.C., but on Capitol Hill, because you are just there all the time. It takes a lot of work of many hours. Seeing people inside the halls of the Capitol Hill buildings and seeing people protesting and demonstrating and, and walking around the plaza is very grounding. And I think incredibly important. And I'd be really sad. Listen, I'm not going to comment. You know, I don't know enough about the, the ins and outs of secure, security, but I'd be really sad if that was gone forever because I think it'll harm our policies and it'll harm what policymakers and their staff actually see. Yeah, and I think from an architectural standpoint, I, fencing just always looks ugly too, right? So, <laughs> especially the ones set up Yeah, exactly, the, especially the ones they always pick. Well, anyway, well, thank you, Allison and Julie, for joining us today for this critical conversation. And we're going to be right back on Future You. This episode of Future You is brought to you by Nelnet Campus Commerce. Nelnet Campus Commerce delivers a secure, integrated payment experience for higher education. The payment solutions offered include payment plans, giving students an affordable payment option for current and past due accounts. Payment plans can be easily tracked by students in your institution's ERP interface. Research shows that students who utilize a payment plan are more likely to be retained semester to semester. Learn more about the research conducted on over 500,000 student records and how it impacted retention rates at campuscommerce.com research. Welcome back to Future You and off that fascinating conversation with uh, Julie and Allison. So Michael, what struck me in listening to them, and Julie made reference to it there right at the end, if we didn't identify which party they worked for in the intros, I'm not sure our listeners would have guessed it during that conversation. It seems even higher ed has become a partisan issue these days, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I look, I totally agree with the observation, Jeff. And I, I, just a macro statement that they alluded to also, which is that 
staffers on these committees, they work together. They actually talk with each other on a regular basis, and they don't have the same pressures that increasingly, I think, that senators and, and, and representatives uh, these days do on them, right? With a constituency that is hammering them on a variety of things to uh, often stake uh, more and more extreme positions on a variety of issues. And I think we saw that flare up dramatically just recently with two vastly different stimulus proposals uh, between the Republicans and Democrats, right? And 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 Democrat uh, Bobby Scott, who chairs uh, the House Education Labor Committee, w- was exasperated with that because Republicans in their version of the stimulus bill, they had no further aid for colleges and universities versus $35 billion from the Democrats. Now, both were well short of what the industry has asked for, but you know, $35 billion is a big chasm between the two. And, and the other thing I guess I'd say is even beyond the Senate, we, we also know that the broader political emphasis in higher ed is very different between the two parties. You know, the Democrats are often focusing on, say, for-profit universities or free college, whereas the Republicans are much more interested in free speech issues, say, and things of that nature. And there's also big differences among the political appointees within the executive branch, within the Department of Education itself, which we may get to discuss soon with, you know, having two former secretaries of education on the show. But it, it, creates a very, right now we have a pendulum, frankly, in terms of regulation, forget about legislation, but regulation right now we have a pendulum where every time the opposite party comes in, a whole bunch of stuff changes back uh, to what it was four, eight years earlier. And it's, it's, uh, I think it must be difficult for those institutions on the ground trying to manage against that. But that brings up, I think, the other piece that they talked about, Jeff, which is, you know, they talked about the inner workings of, of the bill making process itself. So back to the legislation side. And I know you covered the Hill for a bit with the Chronicle right before they both got there, actually. What's your take about that, th- their description and, and what in your mind is is missing, I think, from that inner workings? Well, there's, it's no doubt that the voice of the student um, is missing, that anecdote that Allison talked about, about student loans, right? And there were no mm. students in, yeah. the, in the room, right? And so the voices of students in, that, in, that legisla- in legislation, I remember you know, covering the Hill and going to these hearings, and there's a lobbyist for everybody there, um, you know, whether it was the associations or individual institutions. But what's interesting, you know, that was 20 plus years ago, and it's clear that we've been talking about student-centered institutions and the needs of learners, um, you know, and right off of our conversation with Michelle Weiss a few weeks ago, you know, the idea of lifelong learning. So I think we need to really move away from this definition of the unit of measure being the student, because the really the unit measure is the learner now. And the learner may not be associated with a particular institution or a particular type of institution now. And so in some ways, this is even more important now that the needs and the voices of learners get into the policymaking debates. So it's not even just the students, because unfortunately, I think when we think of students, we think of, you know, young people who go to college in a physical place, but that's not what we're necessarily talking uh, about uh, here. The other thing that really struck me is, as Alice and Julie were talking, is that you know, policy making is is sausage making, right? And it happens usually in person in back rooms. It might happen on Capitol Hill over drinks and things like that. And none of that is happening. And I think that being virtual right now for a lot of these staff members, 
must really hurt. You know, I, I sit on a board of trustees. You know, we're about to have a, a virtual meeting. It will be a year since we met in person. And I will I, I can see that the working relationship between some trustees I, I really like to see in person is really starting to not fray now, but just different. It's just different. And I could imagine the same thing is happening in policymaking, both at the federal level and at the state level, where a lot of this just comes to be because of conversations that you're you're having, uh, you know, again, in more casual settings over lunch or coffee or a drink or, so, you know, even in more formal, uh, more formal settings. And, and so in speaking of staffers, uh, Michael, both Julie and Allison describe the average staffer on the Hill, right? Young and out of mostly traditional colleges, probably four-year colleges. And I might argue that many of them from selective colleges in, in many cases too. Beyond the fact that we know today's traditional students are not yesterday's traditional students i wanted to know what like what are some of the big issues you think they're missing as a result i mean if you got 30 minutes with a staff member to talk just generally about higher ed not any particular bill you know what would you tell them about the ecosystem that you see today in in higher ed yeah it's a great question jeff and uh, you know i I think it's easy to say working adult learners, working adult learners, working adult learners. That plays obviously into what you were just talking about in terms of, you know, yesterday's traditional students are different from today's. But I think I might go a different direction, which is that sort of these categories between higher education and workforce training are really falling apart, I think, in 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 many respects, and just aren't the same have the same meaning that they used to do. And so, you know, a lot of these programs that get, are we having some uh, interruption issues, by the way? You were, but I think because you're recording locally, we should be okay, right? That's why I didn't say anything. Okay, yeah, you're, you, I, I, okay, gotcha. You dropped on my end. It was weird. Okay. Yeah, and you dropped on my end. Okay. Sorry, so, I'll, I'll, I'll just pick it up. From, just pick up wherever where you are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, my feeling is, Michael Pogan, tell if we're wrong. If we see something like that, we should just keep going because we're probably okay recording. Okay. 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 Got it. Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. I'll take it. I'll take it right from there. And, and Jeff, these distinctions, I just don't think are as meaningful as they once were, where people really, you know, workforce programs out of the Department of Labor were one thing and, and the higher ed administration of financial aid out of the Department of Education was completely different. The very cool thing is the help committee, you know, for just on the house side, right? Like sees both sides of that and integrating those issues to me and seeing all of them as different forms of higher ed, or we might say post-secondary ed and training and upskilling with different purposes, but a more unified system that's less confusing both to the learner and frankly, the institutions themselves, I think would be a giant leap forward. Now, I, it, it gets me, uh, Jeff, I guess, in, to transition uh, into a lightning round as we sort of wrap up here. And, and, you know, with just the few minutes we have left before we get to a listener question, I'd be curious as you're looking, you know, at, at the stimulus bill and so forth, and there's going to be more stimulus bills that come down, I suspect, over the next 12 months. What do you think needs to be in the next stimulus for students, Jeff? So this won't be popular with, you know, ASU where I have an academic connection or I sit on a board of a, a private college. Don't hold college, back, though. Don't hold back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to. But I'm, uh, you know, we've split a lot of the money up to this point, a lot of the stimulus money between institutions and students. And I just think we need to get more dollars in the hands of students and let them vote with their feet. 
uh, during this pandemic uh, and even after the pandemic. But it's clear from the data that we're seeing, whether it's FAFSA completions or the data that we're seeing in applications from the Common App, that this pandemic is having a greater impact on the potentially the college going plans of of low income and first generation students. And so if we don't want to lose an entire generation of those students potentially going to college, because we know if they don't start, many students don't start, they're never going to go uh, to some sort of post-secondary education, then we need to get money in their hands to help them uh, through this this pandemic. And then let the institutions compete for them. Uh, compete with programs, compete with flex- the flexibility that many of these students need. Uh, let them use that money at non-traditional providers. Uh, but this idea that we're going to give all this money to post-secondary education, but we're going to split it between institutions and students, to be honest with you, I don't think it's really helped either because it really has spread the money much more in a, in a much thinner way than I think it really needs to be um, at this uh, at this point. And so Continuing on, uh, Michael, uh, you know, before the pandemic, if you were setting out an agenda, what is the next two or three issues you tackle in the next year or two in Congress? I get two or three issues, Jeff. <laughs> well, in a lightning round, I might only. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right, all right, all right. I'll do one. How about this? Outcomes, outcomes, outcomes. That that's kind of three. Which is, I, you know, get away from input puts. Let's free up sort of the tyranny of the credit hour to create a competency-based system uh, and not just a pathway for competencies, but a financial aid system that matches and funds based on learning as opposed to time and really focus on the outcomes of those programs. And I, I, I'll just second what you said, like money, follow students and focus on outcomes. That to me is the big uh, shift uh, it, it, that we need Congress and the administration to make over the next uh, couple of years. Right. But I think this all, of course, goes back to what we were talking about earlier in this in this program is that, uh, you know, the lobbying happens at the institutional level and not at the learner level. Yep, that's right. Um, so it's it's probably going to be a, a, a big hurdle to, to get over. So we are taking listener questions, as we've said, uh, on the second half of the season on Future You. So please keep them coming on any social media platform or email them to us. We got a question from Twitter, Michael, for for both of us, you know, we've written, of course, that it's not where you go to college, it's how you go. And this listener said, I'm 100% in agreement with that. What needs to happen to get the general public to truly buy into that, though, especially high school students and parents, Michael, you start. Yeah, I, it's, it's such a good question. And it's something that you and I tell high school parents uh, and students constantly in, in, in our conversations. I, I think Part of this is unlocking the data to show that, right? Which is, and, and, and the stories beside them, right? And look, Frank Bruni did it in his book, obviously, several years back. Uh, but I think it needs to be just said and pointed out more that there are multiple pathways into a good life. And it's really the opportunities you seize on the campus that you go to, the people that you meet, the projects you undertake, the internships and the jobs that you get during that time are going to matter way more. And this notion of, uh, you know, that I have to go to, quote unquote, an arbitrary best place, the data doesn't necessarily support that. And so I think we need to do a much better job of surfacing that. What's your take? Yeah, I, I think we're getting there, right? I think the information is there in terms of the college scorecard. We're seeing it in books like Ron Lieber's book around value of college and and what you should be looking for. This idea of outcomes now obviously is much more in the conversation than it was even five, 10, 10 years ago. It's just going to take maybe perhaps a generation to get through that. But I maybe by the time our kids go to college, 
they will be asking different questions because an entire generation of students will be uh, be asking about the value of the outcomes of going to a particular institution. Well, my bank account will certainly hope uh, that is the case, Jeff. But uh, in the meantime, just a huge thanks to our listeners uh, for tuning in. And remember to send uh, questions to us uh, so that we can continue to engage with the things that are on your mind. And until next time, stay safe. 